ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Ian McKee. Ian is the CEO of Euler, an online global film and TV content marketplace. It connects buyers with distributors worldwide, allowing them to negotiate directly and complete deals online in days rather than months. Thanks, Gabriella. Lovely to be here. I first became aware of you and Euler through LinkedIn. So score one for LinkedIn marketing. And having worked in marketing and promotion for entertainment brands, when I read through your materials, I thought, this is really something. And I arranged to have a pre-interview call with you. And the first thing I asked was, how do you pronounce the name of your business? And your answer didn't only answer my question, but also told a story about how you approached things. And so I'd like to, to start there. Vueller, V-U-U-L-R. And I feel like I'm mispronouncing it, even though I, I'm pretty sure I'm saying it properly. <laughs> um, can, you, can you explain the story and how you picked it? So thanks for the question. Actually, it's um, I do get asked that question quite a lot. So uh, y- you you were good with the pronunciation. It is Vula. The real reason that it is is has that name and it's spelt that way is that having had a digital marketing background, I knew that it's a good idea to find a company name that you can own the URL for and that you can return very good search results for without having to spend money on search engine optimization. So I spent a few days generating names or combinations of letters that are pronounceable uh, (laughs) and had never been seen by Google before. And that's not an easy task. And Vula was a result of that exercise. And today, if you type Vula into the Google search bar, then we are every return on the first page, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. And I haven't spent a penny in search engine optimization. So see, it tells us that you're smart and thoughtful and, uh, and very clever. And the other question I asked, who your closest digital competitive set were, who you viewed them to be? Our, our biggest competitor, our most real competitor, is the the old way of doing things. The people, the right. way, people, the way people have been habitually doing the transacting of licensing of rights. So that, that's our real competition. What was the problem that you saw in in real life marketplaces and in in the world as it's evolving? Yeah. So let, let me. Let me answer that from three perspectives, really, from the industry perspective, from the buyer perspective, and from the seller perspective, just really to cover all of it. So from an industry perspective, the the way I described the problem was friction. It took a lot of manual effort and expense and time to uh, achieve a licensing transaction. Right. That could mean you have to jump on a plane and fly to where an event is happening. You have to spend money with an event organizer to buy a booth or to buy tickets. You have to wander around hoping to bump into each other. Then, you know, lots of um, unstructured, manually long drawn out 
processes of uh, what's the avails, do you have this, uh, what's the exclusivity, et cetera, which is why it commonly took three to six months to complete a licensing transaction. The middleman that will help you do it will, will ask for a 30% commission or margin simply because they need that to, to cover their costs because of the friction. So that, that's really the, the pain point for the industry is far too much money is bleeding out of the industry to cover the cost of getting this key transaction done. These, these intermediaries, do they add any value to the system? Was there any value that they brought that you have to fold into your product? You know, there, there's a vested interest in the intermediary saying, well, hang on a second, I can't just be replaced. What would they say that they brought to the party that you still provide? Or do you okay. think they don't bring anything to the party? <laughs> I mean, it's just totally fair. Well, I think I think the honest the, the honest and, and truthful argument is some do and some don't. But let, let me finish off answering your former question, but then I'll answer this question. So I was saying friction is a big part of the problem that we're trying to solve. From the buyer's point of view, the thing that Vula offers is speed, agility, and convenience. And I don't have a clever phrase for it, but basically being able to do your job better. Deals on the platform close in about 10 days versus three months. What that means is agility for you, your your channel, your platform to be able to respond faster to the changes in your audience's taste. So you can you know, be more customer centric, which is always a good idea as uh, the industry becomes more competitive for eyeballs. And the kind of being able to do your job better bit really represents the fact that now audiences are more than happy to watch content that wasn't made in their own native language. Right. right? Many of the best things that we watch today have subtitles because they've come from somewhere else. Right. And of course, that's meant a huge upheaval for someone in an acquisitions department because they now need to go looking in much more globalized sense to find the next drama, the next film, because it doesn't necessarily get traped through the door by your friendly distributor who's got you know a catalog that they've been dealing with for years. So you need to be finding new stuff. So we do that since we have this huge global catalog, more than 165,000 hours of content, 26,000 titles from over 120 countries in the world. It's the single biggest global catalog in the world. All the trailers and screeners and metadata are all neatly aggregated to one place. So one login and you can search this huge catalog to find whatever it is that you're looking for. Before you jump in and, and go to the sell side, just to understand a little bit more about that buy side. Sure. So if I'm a buyer and I'm buying for Peacock or Netflix and I'm looking for a period piece crime drama with an award-winning actor, I can search for that, that it functions sort of like a Google search and yeah. the database is your... And the metadata that is so valuable to power that search, is that something that sellers are all providing? Is that something that you're layering in to it? And so there's some sort of you know, some people are better at metadata than others. So do you, are you the leveler so that you're actually making sure that like is like that there's some consistency in what's tagged as what the yeah. metadata is, is clean. Is that something that you guys do? Yes, absolutely. So sellers in, engage by registering with the platform and then they can either upload and list it themselves or they can use a template and pass some metadata to us. And we we will take it through our metadata ops team, which will make sure that it's complete and correct. 
And then once it, we've kind of polished it up to make it complete and correct, then we'll do the load. But you're exactly right. A marketplace is only as good as the data that drives it. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, if it's the if a film is a horror film like Amityville Horror, for instance, but it's tagged as a con- as a comedy, then you know people are soon gonna uh, not find it very useful because they can't find what they want. Absolutely, we do take a lot of care to try and make sure that the metadata quality going in is very high, so that the value of the search in the system is kept very high. So you're right. And we're always looking at tools and even now starting to prototype some AI stuff to try and um, make that even better than it is. But at the moment, it's just all manually processed. What? So in addition to genres and actors, are you also, are things like whether the production team has won awards in the past, what kind of things go into it? So we have a basic um, fingerprint of what, you know, what are the minimum items, mm-hmm. um, which is drawn directly from an organization called IDA, the okay. Entertainment ID Registry, um, which we're a member of and we issue IDA codes. So people who come and list with us will get their content allocated with an IDA code. So enough metadata to ensure that we can disambiguate two titles to be the clearly the same or clearly different. But on top of that, we do have uh, optional um, sets of fields like keywords and awards and box office and other titles. And of course, it's in the interest of the seller to populate those to the best of their ability, because that makes it easier for a buyer to find and evaluate their title. Right. When you say other titles, would that be comp titles? Like this is similar to or other titles from... Because finding a comp title when you're either creating IP or selling IP is useful. You know, what are the comps? So is that something that is built in there as well or, or not? Will be. Will be. Okay. Will be. Okay, so I cut you off and you were talking about the sellers. So let's put on the the seller piece. From the seller's perspective, the benefits that we bring is, um, oh, I should say for the buyer, our service is free. So all of that good stuff um, and it doesn't cost you a penny. That's why we've grown to having more than four and a half, nearly 5,000 registered, vetted, and approved buyers because, you know, they obviously find it useful. So when you talk about the sellers, uh, they have a different set of problems, of course, um, and we solve for those very well. Uh, the first is as a digital platform, we market content and, digi- and a, digital, a digital platform and a digital marketing program that sits behind it. We market content into all the 200 different countries in the world. So when you're marketing digitally, the world is flat. The world is, is, is very small. So we will help them get distribution into their secondary and tertiary markets to support all the revenue they're making out of their mm-hmm. primary targets. So uh, better geographic distribution uh, is the first benefit. Second mm-hmm. benefit is that you know, as a digital catalog, that isn't really, you know, subject to the bandwidth limitations of humans and having a one-hour meeting, we can hold an infinite-sized catalog. So when we work with sellers, we invite them to list their entire catalog, not just their front, but their middle and back catalog. Oh. 
And that's all for free. It's the the Spotify versus Tower Records inventory issue. Correct. That's right. It's it's the idea that all content, you know, has, it will have somebody looking for it. And Mm -hmm. so we're happy because there's a digital catalog to to load the entire catalog. So whether you've got a hundred hours or a thousand hours or 5,000 hours, and we've got, you know, many clients who have uploaded those sort of catalogs with us, we'll host all of the listing pages, we'll host the trailers, we'll host the screeners for those titles and put it into a, a marketplace platform that makes it easy for, for buyers to search for, evaluate, and then submit an offer to you, the seller, for, uh, for them to license it for you. So the second benefit is to monetize the back catalog. Third, of course, is the the fact that, you know, same as the buyers, speed is important. So Mm -hmm. the fact that um, you can manage many more negotiations because you're doing it digitally than if you're trying to do it manually over the phone or over a Zoom call, um, it's much easier if you do it through a digital platform. Better better uh, geographic distribution, better geographic monetization, better monetization of the entire catalog, uh, and just more effective. Um, And our commission is only 10%. And that's it. That's what it sells. So I'm selling. I want to not just put up the front catalog. I want to put up the whole shooting match. It's all going to go up. And I only pay when I sell. And I pay 10%. That's it. That's it. No fees, no subscriptions, no dues, no hidden hidden charges, just 10%. And only when we've found a buyer who sent you an offer that you've agreed to. So you're in, as a seller, you're in control of who you sell to and what are the commercial terms. Uh, Vueler is not a party to the transaction. We're just the platform. And the long form is up to you to negotiate and typically what we see happening these days is that nobody brings a lawyer in. Um, the negotiation is either we'll do it on the seller's standard contract or we'll mm. do it on the buyer's standard contract. So there's right. a, bit of, a bit of to and fro on, on that, but that's a relatively easy thing to negotiate and agree, and you don't need a lawyer involved to, to, to agree that, um, which is why deals get done and – I, this is really in line with what we see as a overall trend in the industry, which is indivi- the average individual deal side ha- size has been coming down now for many years. Uh-huh. As, as is logical and inevitable and will continue to do because uh, audience numbers per channel or per platform have been coming down because there are many more channels and streaming uh, uh, platforms now than there were two years ago, four years ago, or even 10 years ago. Right. And right. Um, so what that means is that whilst there is more money in the industry today than ever before, the deals come in different shapes. Now we're moving to uh, a larger number of deals, but each deal is probably of a slightly lower value. Right. Right. So it's, it's fractured, more volume. More, the industry is becoming more fragmented. Right. So in terms of your revenue model, beyond the commission, the, the 10%, are you doing anything else? Are you capturing the data around searching? 
or what people are creating and selling that to to for any anything is there anything there other than other than this uh, commission we don't expose or sell any data at all everything on the platform is secure and private we, and so you're not even looking at it sort of from an anonymized these genres are popping sort of academic newsworthy this is i mean because you know even if you weren't to say who is doing what, you could tell what genres, you could see the, the bump before it happened. You would know that. Yes. So we, we, we might have a, a data scientist extract some interesting trends from mm-hmm. it. And we did, uh, we did a crunch of that at the end of 2020. And you know, one of the one of the examples that we found was the split of genres that were transacting on the platform. So this is very much aggregated data. And what we expected was that the top few genres would take up, you know, the top 20% of genres would take up 80% of transaction volume. We expected to see that. What we found was not true. Not really. Yep. That's interesting. So what we found was that, and and when we stopped to think about it, this is a feature, a benefit of what digital is is able to do, is because it's it's an infinite bandwidth search and matching tool, you you don't get stuck behind that, that, the tyranny of the 80-20. So it, what that means is that, you know, whereas drama still was the top rate, uh, ranked genre that's transacting on the platform, it only represented about 16% of the transactions. Huh. And we went all the way down to halfway of our uh, 60-odd genre that we've got on the platform. We went all the way down to the halfway point before we got to 80% of the tractions. When you are talking about digital platforms, what we've done is break the 80-20 rule and remade it as the 50-80. So that means as a content producer, you can carry on and make the type of content that you're interested to make, factual, historical, period, um, you know, uh, children's content. Um, and our platform gives you a very efficient way for the for buyers who are looking for what you make to find you. Wow. So that's so interesting. I mean, it's it's the long tail that everybody talked about for so long in in some ways mm. coming so, being at made. A genre level. Correct. That's right. And in reality, the eighty twenty rule is um, is a result of narrow bandwidth, right? If right. your title is in a distributor's catalog and they have a catalog of a hundred titles and they've got a half hour meeting with someone they have to pick what they think is the easiest to sell. And that's why in those sort of what what I call narrow bandwidth environments, only the kind of mainstream vanilla least, um, least objectionable to anybody's stuff gets presented. Whereas a digital environment, it's much better about matching more niche content creators with uh, the buyers who are looking for that niche content, but being able to do that at a global scale. Right. So, well, one thing when I, when people had in real life meetings, everybody had sort of a booth where they would have their content, their stuff, and the bigger players could throw their weight around and have better stuff, you know, better, 
better swag to, to tempt people to spend time with them. So if I'm a seller, can I still brand and group my materials? Uh, one of the key aspects about the platform and one of, the, one of the reasons I'm passionate about doing it is a concept we describe as democratizing the access to distribution. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that um, anybody, com- you know, proper broadcast quality, commercial grade content can register and can list. And whether you're a first-time producer of content or whether you're a studio that has a catalog of a 1,000 hours, those pieces of content live on the platform as equals. And that according to what the buyer is searching for, they may find a combination. And according to how well that piece of content fits what the buyer needs, one may be more attractive than the other, no matter who it came from. So it creates this completely inclusive, democratic or meritocratic environment where it's the content that matters, not who or what made it, whether it was a studio or an individual, someone who was plugged into the LA network or sitting in Reykjavik, you know, probably about as far away from the media capitals of the world as you can get. Both have an equal chance of having their content bought by a buyer somewhere with everyone the ability to create their own branded screening rooms which is a feature we just launched this year as long as you've got three titles with screeners loaded then you can create a screening room and that screening room uh you you will be able to give it your own url so beulah.com you know my studio name screening room, whatever you want to call it, uh, you'll be able to put your logo on it, your company description on it, and you'll be able to choose the titles that you want to put on it. And then you get that vanity URL to share with your uh, with your prospects as a way for them to come in and watch the screener. And when they log in with that URL, all they'll see is your screening room. And then from there, hopefully, they'll like your content and it's a simple click through to, for that buyer to then submit an offer to you. A screening simply becomes one step in the natural journey for a buyer to go from, I'm interested, I'm more interested, and now I want to make you an offer, and we turn offers into deals. So when when it's my screening room, when they click in and they are at the sort of deal negotiation pages, they're not seeing all of the Viewer library. They're just seeing my stuff. So I'm not sending people into another universe. Is that right? Correct. With a couple of clicks, they can go to the main part of Viewer, but that's not where we take them. We take them to your content first. Right. You know, I didn't clarify this earlier in the conversation, but the kind of content that's available is film and TV, but it's locked. It's finished. We're not talking about stuff that's in development, correct? Correct. Yeah. In the can. Finished content, ready to be delivered. Many people are talking about that we are in the world short of today because right. of so little new production. So right. um, we have this huge catalog just sitting there ready to be bought. Well, and, and talking about uh, serendipity, when did you launch? We started the build of this quite a long time ago because it's a relatively big, complex platform. We spent 2019 marketing just to the sellers to get their content on board. Mm-hmm. And as you said, serendipity, we did the full global launch at NAPTI in Miami in January 20. And so, you know, we were a digital platform 
at a time when the world was needing a digital way to do business. I mean, one of the things psychologists and economists are talking about is which behaviors are durable from the pandemic. And it has to do with the enjoyment and ease of use of any new behavior. So Mm -hmm. what kind of feedback have you gotten from, from people about the process? What are the signals that you're picking up on the ground? I mean, first of all, you know, we never let rest on our laurels. There are always ways to make things that we do better and to add extra bells and whistles to make it easier or to extensions. And we're hard at work at those. But um, the core themes that we get back is from, from the content creators. The general theme is, gosh, it's about time something like this one. <laughs> We, we are fed up with the friction and, and the complexity and difficulty of getting distribution. So we love that there's a digital platform. We love the fact that, you know, you don't charge us up front. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of that. Uh, we regularly sell content for people, get them deals that they, they wouldn't have otherwise got in parts of the world that, you know, they don't particularly know very well. And so they're super happy to get all of its newfound revenue. Uh, sometimes first-time filmmakers will make sales through our platform. And, you know, I, I love the personal notes that I get on LinkedIn say, you know, thank you very much for making Vula. This has really enabled me to start my career. For buyers, they love, basically, they love the convenience, ability that they can work at speed and at scale to find content, make offers, and then complete them very quickly. Right. It's amazing. One of the things during our pre-interview that I said to you was, it sounds like the perfect platform for smart contracts and blockchain, at which point you laugh. So as we're wrapping up our interview, can you explain where that is floating in the um, in the future of your business and where it and where it stood in the past? So when uh, when we're very first putting the thinking together for the Vula, we realized that the uh, you know the the problem space of registering ownership of intellectual property. And then keeping track of the the distribution of rights, whether that's rights for distribution or rights for exhibition, was a perfect problem space to be solved by distributed ledger, also known as blockchain technology. So we did write up a white paper describing how we could do that. And it used specifically to use the technical jargon, an ERC-721 contract, which is the contract that's behind the NFT today. Mm -hmm. We wrote this up in uh, 2018. And we built, uh, we were spotted by the Singapore government and given a a grant by the Singapore government to build a working prototype, which we did. So we have a whole working prototype of how all of this could be managed. What we found was that both sides. One, the technology in 2018 was a little bit immature to bring mm-hmm. a commercial platform to, to market using it. And the second was that the the industry was far from ready to understand how a blockchain-based solution would work and why and how right. some of that data would be on, you know, on a on a distributed ledger and what is a distributed ledger and is it not to do with money laundering and is this Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. And so I realized that we needed to wait a little bit until right. the technology matured and that the the industry became more uh, educated about uh, the solutions built on the blockchain 
And that's happening very fast. NFTs are, uh, you know, a good move in the direction. Yeah, there's a lot of froth and hype about it, but at least it's it is educating the industry that blockchain or distributed ledgers are a, a good way to manage intellectual property. Whether in this case it's art, maybe digital art, and that you know when the time is right, we will port all of the data and all the functionality that we're building on a database at the moment, normal database. We will port that over onto a whatever is you know at that time the right technology uh, onto a distributed ledger, uh, into tokenizing protocol, and with smart contracts to manage the term, the capturing of the terms between right. the two contracting parties exactly as a smart contract should do. And we see that's so a really interesting thing. So you're, re- you're ready. You're just waiting. Yep. To go. I think it's great. Thank you so much for sharing about what you're doing. I think it's really interesting. And I think a lot of independent filmmakers will be very excited to understand a little bit better what it is and how they can benefit. And a lot of development execs are going to be excited to be able to get a wider view easier on what is out there. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me on, Gabrielle. Lovely chatting to you. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend, Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.